What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, I have Brett from Ignite, and uh, this was awesome. He was super generous with his time, and anyone that knows me knows that in the 90s, easily my favorite California hardcore bands were Ignite and Powerhouse, so this was super rad. Um, yeah, he was super generous with his time. We went through everything, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Um, please support the podcast by... Uh, give me a like, a rating, or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. That stuff's really important. And if you can spread the word with all your friends, um, repost this on social media, et cetera, et cetera. Text a buddy. Say, I enjoy this podcast, if you do. Um, also, if you would like to go the extra mile, you can go to patreon.com slash 185 miles south and uh, become a, much, a monthly contributor. And these are the people that keep the podcast alive. I uh, I love them to a man and woman. Um, they really do keep it alive. So please consider doing that. And uh, let's get on with the pod. One hundred eighty-five miles south. A hardcore punk rock podcast. All right, this week on the pod, we have Brett from McKnight. Welcome. Hey, what's up, buddy? Hey, and uh, full disclosure, I mean, Ignite was my favorite hardcore band in the 90s. So definitely for California, along with Powerhouse. So Nice. Good friends of ours. <laughs> Yeah, you guys did a, a fair amount of shows with them. We did Europe in 01, and then we did a bunch of one-off shows, some West Coast stuff. I think we even went and did Mexico with them at one point. Not a full tour, but like just a show down in Tijuana. Um, yeah, we we did our fair share. Good guy. Yeah, I, and one of the most underrated bands ever. You know, I think that just kind of maybe a casualty of uh, of when stuff doesn't come out on vinyl, sometimes it kind of gets left behind. You know, yeah, they they never really had a home as far as a label that I thought would do them justice of what they should have where they should have been because they were I thought I thought they were in competition with anybody out there that was doing that style and they just didn't get the exposure that a lot of the other you know bands did just because they were either on a victory or whatever at that time you know yeah total shame but anyway let's get into ignite and actually we should go to pre ignite um, did you did you do any bands before you did did ignite. Um, just like a high school band, which was just like, uh, that wasn't a punk band at all. It was uh, more of like kind of a darky, dark kind of gothy kind of band, um, like a Joy Division kind of sounding band, but nothing that ever had a release. Um, and then when I met Joe Foster, um, uh, that's what got that's me started working and working on songs together. We were actually kind of played for a minute in another band. Actually, we kind of joined that band for a short, short time in like '92 or '93 before we started actually writing songs for Ignite. Yeah, and and how did you meet Joe Foster? I met Joe Foster from one of the bands that I did before. He uh, was friends with one of my singers, and uh, he was gonna. We were gonna maybe play. He was gonna maybe play guitar for us in that band, and then we reconnected like a few months later um, when he was uh, looking for a bass player to add to that band mad parade. So, um, 
yeah, just uh, met him once, and then six months later, he got a number, my number from somebody, and then reconnected with me and played in that band for a little bit, and then we started writing songs together. Yeah, yeah. And were you aware of like his his previous catalog, like the Unity stuff? You know what? I was pretty not aware of anything hardcore um, before I started playing with him. Um, I had the Salad Day Seven Inch on tape. Um, from a buddy from high school, and then my punk uh, kind of uh, the music that I listened to in the punk world was more like Pistols, Ramones, Clash, that kind of stuff. More of the, like the major label seventies punk. Yeah, um, first wave. I, I, yeah, I had no idea about anything like really hardcore outside of a few tapes I've gotten from buddies in high school with like minor threat and a few bands, but nothing about the like the scene in general. Okay, so he recruits you to to do Ignite. Had they already like jammed and they were just looking for a bass player? Like, is the demo already fully formed? So me and Joe started. We played in that band, Mad Parade, for like two months, and then we quit and wanted to start our own thing. So me and him and a drum machine started Ignite. Um, oh God! Yeah, so we just would uh, get together two or three times a week. Um, and he was uh, doing a lot of overseas modeling at that point. So he'd be in, gone to Japan for a couple months and come home and we'd do work on music and then he'd go to Europe or something and come back. Um, so that first year that I met him, he was uh, back and forth overseas. And in between, we were working on music just with a drum machine. And then uh, we brought in Joe Nelson because um, Joe had known, Foster had known Nelson previously through the, like, the, just the scene in general. Yeah. So, do, do any of these, the demos exist still of the drum machine stuff? I have all that stuff. Oh, I'm going to be on you like a cheap suit, Brett. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them are songs that ended up on uh, the first, you know, few releases. Um, yeah. Some of them never turned into anything. Some of the music we kept and um, turned into different songs. And then a couple songs, whole complete songs were just, they just went away because they just didn't fit. I bet it sounds really neat though, because... Joe Foster has such a good, he does such a good job of like hitting like uh, kind of like dark chords and so forth. Like he's very like TSL yeah. influenced. And so with like the yeah. drum machine, it probably gives it a real vibe. It sounded like adolescence to be honest. Oh, it didn't so sound cool. like Ignite. It, yeah. It didn't sound like Ignite too much. Uh, the first stuff we did with the drum machine, cause we weren't really sure which type of beat to use. And so everything was a little bit more straightforward, not really the galloping fast beat. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit more adolescent sounding than Ignite, the early music anyway. Yeah. So eventually you put together a demo. Yeah. And that's 1993. And yeah, we did that in 93. We got Casey. Um, we were, we were, it was me, Joe Foster, Joe Nelson and the drum machine. And then uh, they had run into, and Gavin was actually playing it. Gavin Ogle would be at the time. So there was five, four of us and a drum machine. And, uh, and then Gavin had run into Casey Jones, I think at Zed Records in Long Beach. And uh, we started jamming with Casey and that worked out. Um, so yeah, that was the first five of us. And then we started actually recording like an actual four track demo at the rehearsal place. Yeah. And these songs out the gate, like are songs that would be Ignite classics for the first like five, six, seven years of your career. You know, like the demo has Asher Turn, Distance, Slow, Should Have Known, Far yep. Away. Um, yeah, exactly. That's and some of those were... Two, two or three of those were drum machine songs. And then like Ash Return, I think Ash Return was the first song we wrote um, that wasn't one of the drum machine songs in the rehearsal. Yeah. Did you write, did you write the bass line or did Joe? 
Oh yeah, I wrote that. All right, one of the wind yeah, calls for Brett. Yeah, that was a. Uh, it was interesting because I just didn't want to play root notes, and uh, I, I mean, coming from kind of a, that Joy Division, Peter Hook kind of world, it was like I wanted to play high bass lines, high runs over. Like if Joe was playing a G chord, I just didn't want to play a low G. I wanted to play like a moving, like high bass note thing um, to kind of get the little bit of the, like the Joy Division feel into the music. And then Joe would always go away from writing full chords into like, you know, different riffs and stuff. So I, with my like bass line kind of being high and melodic and his kind of like crunchy kind of uh, chords that he was using, it kind of we kind of came up with our sound pretty quick. Yeah. And is this the only thing that you do with Joe Nelson? Is this the only thing that, what is, was that? Is this the only recording you do with Joe Nelson? Is this like the same recording that goes on the Scarred for Life? No, we, we, we did. So we did the drum machine demo, then we did the four track demo. Then we went into, uh, uh, let's see, Moonsong Studios out in Riverside. And we did the, uh, which was just going to be the seven inch, but then it turned into a full length because we got a, an offer to do a tour in Europe. And Lost and Found Records wanted to put something out, but they didn't want to put out an EP. They wanted to put out a full one. So we needed to go into the studio and uh, finish a few more songs. So that's when Nelson's song was on Scarred for Life. Okay. The last three songs he's, he's on yet. So yeah. there's actually three different sessions with Nelson. Okay. Yeah. No, just looking at the discography for 94 is is so wild because, you know, you get a year, but you don't get a month. And you guys, right. you guys put out so much stuff. It's kind of, that's why I need your help here. So, uh, yeah. So, so when we, we did the where they talk seven inch, that was when Randy was singing right. and, um, and we actually recorded that's after. So songs. Joe leaves, Joe, Joe leaves. joins the band. Yep. Uh, Joe starts playing with us. We do, do a demo with him and then he's always out on the road with quicksand. Um, right. Because he's friends with those guys. So he's touring around with those guys and they get the rate of machine tour. And he's like, I can't stay home to do, you know, like just a band when I can go do this big tour. So he was in and out a lot. So then he had kind of recruited Randy to take to fill his spot. And we, it was, it was, I loved it with Randy. I thought it was great. Um, I loved what he brought to the table, what he sang, um, and, but it just wasn't his bag. So he wasn't, he stuck around for probably six months. Okay. So he's just in the man for six months. Cause that seven inches is fucking awesome. The where they talk seven inch and is ringside yeah. is ringside self-released or is that one of your buddies? That's um, our buddy Evan, who's good friends with Joe Nelson. I just we just basically used his imprint just to have something to put it on, but we paid for the press and we did it all ourselves. Yeah, um, and you have the song "Turn" on there, which is like one of the greatest songs ever. You know, I, I remember yeah, that was one of my fav- favorite early songs as well. Yeah, I remember when it was like kind of getting pulled out of your set list, and it was it was disappointing. It's like, oh, that song's going. It's it's not going to come back. I don't think, <laughs> you know, because it's so perfect and classic. You know, it's like, I don't know. It's just kind of a no brainer to always be there. But of, of course, people evolve. Um, yeah. But no, I mean, the total perfect, perfect song. Um, so then you do a couple splits. Also, is this is this just because you're going to Europe so much out the gate? Do you like how many times you go to Europe in '94? So once we go once, we go in August, but it's, uh, we, I've never toured before. Okay. Um, we started off this band with a, with a European tour. We did local shows. We probably played like 10 local shows. And then, um, when the guy who owned Lost and Found Records in Germany, um, 
caught wind of the band. And the way he found out about it was, was Gavin was over in February of 93 with No For An Answer, their first European tour. Okay. And, uh, and uh, he meets up with the guy from Lost and Found, and he asks Gavin, oh, anything new coming out of Orange County? And Gavin said, um, oh, well, I'm actually doing this band with Joe from Unity and Casey from No For An Answer and whatnot. And, uh, and he was super interested right off the get-go. So he said, send me some songs. So Gavin sent him a couple songs for us. And he, uh, he shit himself. Found out that we were in the, well, yeah, he found out we were in the studio and he's like, look, I can get, if you guys can go in and record more songs, I can get you on probably a tour with either sick of it all or slap shot, um, in the summer. And we'll put a full length out. Are you guys in? And I mean, we're like playing like local shows for nobody. <laughs> and then sure. somebody calls you and tells you, Hey, you can go to Europe, do two months tour on a tour bus with one of these bands. And uh, do you guys want to do it? And it's like, are you kidding me? So we scrambled, finished the, um, finished the, uh, start for life, added a few more songs to make it a full length. And um, we didn't even have a singer because Nelson was gone. Randy was out. Right. And, uh, we just had Joe finish it so we could put something out. Um, but we didn't have a singer at that point. So, and we agreed to do the tour. We were like, you know, full steam ahead. Let's go do it. We'll just, we'll just figure it out. We'll get a singer before summertime. And, uh, so that's, that's how Scar for Life came to be. Not just the where they talk seven inch extended to a full length because of the tour offer. And, uh, and it was, just, it was all really quick. It was like, it happened like in like the whole thing from recording to being on tour happened within like six months. Yeah. And there's also a slap shot split and a battery split. Both on. Yeah. So the slap shot split was just basically a tour promo seven inch. Sure. And then, and then the next year when we came back, the same thing, the battery. We didn't tour with them, but they wanted to put another split out. Gotcha. Was pressing just, that label was pressing anything and everything they could get their hands on at that time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're raging right then. Um, so how do you come across Zoli? How do you meet him? Zoli is discovered by Gavin. as Well, not discovered. They knew each other from the scene and going to shows and uh, Zoli's brother and... Um, and Gavin, uh, I think it was like in May or June of 94, um, Gavin's up at the Viper Room, I think it was, uh, seeing the band Wool, uh, Pete Stahl's band, and um, runs into Zoli at that show and, uh, you know, says, hey, what are you up to? And he goes, nothing, you know, I'm just whatever. He was doing some acoustic solo stuff at the time. And, uh, and he kind of explained the situation. Look, we've got a European tour all lined up. We've got an album done. We need a singer. Um, and yeah, that's so Zoli. They had known Casey and uh, Gavin had known Zoli for years. I don't think Joe had ever met him before. But uh, but uh, yeah, so um, he, he came down, long hair, full beard, like long beard, hair down to his waist. Um, and uh, we had just been in the process of trying out like 10 guys and nothing was working. Um, it wasn't even close. Like, we were just like, just get somebody in the ballpark. And then Zoe walks in, and we play like probably 30 seconds of Ash Return and uh-huh. stopped. And it was like, all right, you want to do this? Because it was obviously he could sing in time. He was on key, and, you know, and we didn't even know his range at that point, but it was like, um, and he, he, he was, it was kind of funny because he didn't really believe us. That he's like, oh, what do you mean? I got the gig. Well, if you want it, we're like, yeah. And he's like, okay. And he kept calling us all that week. Like, is this for real? Because I got some <laughs> stuff coming up. Like, I'll, I'll do this if you guys are really doing this. Like, you guys aren't trying anybody else out. We're like, no. This is like, you want this? 
And uh, it was funny. So I didn't expect him to cut his hair or cut his beard. And like at the third practice, he showed up with a shaved head and no beard. <laughs> it, did he have any idea what he was going to sound like before he belted? No, no. And I was, I pulled up, he was sitting in his 68 VW bus in front of our rehearsal room with his dog sitting shotgun with his hat on backwards and long hair. And I looked over and I was like, oh, man. I was like, this isn't going to like, it just, I don't know. You had to, we had just tried out like 10 guys. None of them. They all were terrible. And, uh, and, um, and then he came in, grabbed the mic, grabbed the mic and started wailing yeah. on the song. Yeah. And, you know, of course he's kind of flexing a little bit cause he wants to prove he wants to go to Europe, wants to do this tour. So he's like screaming and singing. And we're just like, Holy mackerel. Like this is incredible. So, um, so yeah, so that's how we, that's how we got um, solely into the band and it, we left like seven weeks later for Europe. Yeah. And, and how did that go over? What was that like that first tour? Like, again, like I said, that was my first tour. So I had no expectations of what anything was going to be like. Um, didn't know how to pack for a tour. Um, and just, you know, when we got the routing, waiting for the facts to come into, um, was it Revelation at that time? No, we weren't. That was before Rev. Um, conversion Records. We got the um, the uh, no, it wasn't even Conversion. It was just um, somebody's mom's work. We were waiting to get the facts, and um, we saw the dates, and it was like fifty-six shows in fifty-eight days. Oh my god! And uh, but we were just like, okay, I don't know. Is this how it works? I guess so. <laughs> we didn't know, and and you know, a lot of bands still tour like that but we had no idea that that was like a lot of shows and not many off days but it didn't really matter because we were pretty naive to touring because Casey never really toured in No Fernando that much Chris Bratton mostly did like a lot of the touring that they did Unity never really toured um, so Zoli had never really been in a band before I mean I think he did some, some stuff but none of us had been like none of us were road dogs none of us had really done tours right so when we got we got out to Europe and we fly into Berlin and uh, we call the booking agent and um, we're in the wrong city. We're supposed to fly into Frankfurt. I mean, there was no communication, no emails. It was like, so they got to send a van to come get us and drive us from Berlin to Frankfurt to where the bus is picking everybody up. And uh, it was pretty surreal. It was like 24 hours of just like, staying awake and then finally getting to the Frankfurt airport and, uh, the slap shot guys show up, the bus shows up. Um, and it's a piece of crap, the bus. Um, <laughs> it, it's a old, old city bus, the Austrian city bus converted into a, uh, bus with beds in it. And the back door to the bus, the back door to the side door still has those big like rods on it, but they couldn't take those off. So the rods went through those bunks. So you had to sleep. <laughs> Whoever had those bunks had to sleep like around those weird, um, <laughs> the door rods. And, yeah. and there was the, the back, the bathroom, the toilet was just sitting on the floor and it would just fill up. And then the driver would have to go pick it up with the fans and dump it. Well, on nights where everybody was drinking and it was long nights, it would fill up and it would turn, you turn left and the, all the pee would spill out of it and run down the hall. Oh, and, uh, yeah, it was pretty gross. But, um, we again, we didn't know, and it was just like, "Cool, let's, this is awesome." So we got into the bus and headed to Sweden for a, for a show, which wasn't a club show. It was a giant, giant festival with uh, Blur, Midnight Oil um, on our stage. Was like refused, no fun at all. Us, uh, 
slap shot. So it was like 40,000 person festival was our first show. Holy and uh, we were playing the side stage, of course, but, uh, sure. um, there was like five or 6,000 people watching us for our first show in Europe. And I mean, from there we just went, this is, <clears throat> this is amazing. We got to take advantage of this. So we just tried to kill it every night because we knew if we got, you know, some good reviews and people liked us, we could come back. So. Yeah. It, what was the average show like though on the tour? I mean, we played some squats in East Germany, um, which was not obviously East Germany bank, but it was the Eastern part of Germany. Um, we played some squats for like 200 people, but a lot of the shows were like five, six hundred to a thousand. And then, uh, whatever festivals we played, there was a few like indoor festivals, like big, uh, kind of warehouse type shows. And then that first festival we did in Sweden. And, uh, but most of the shows were just typical club shows. Yeah. Five, six, seven hundred caverns, you know, up to House of Blue Side places, a couple of them. Yeah. That's amazing out the gate though. And it just has I, to, I mean, yeah. It has to give you just a rush of, of confidence, right? Which which Ignite had, like, you know, from the time I would have started seeing you, which would have been, like, 96. Like, you guys are just such a pro band. You know, and it has to it be was, just a lot of that. It was cool because we just recognized the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were like, okay, we were at home in California playing to nobody, trying to get on shows. And now we're playing in front of a ton of people every night. Let's just try and win them over. Let's try and kill it. Let's try and beat Slapshot every night, you know? Let's try and uh, make it so we can come back ASAP. And um, and there was just you could just tell there was a ton of opportunity there, and we wanted to take advantage of every second of it, every piece of it. So we just we were just like busted our butts and tried to just like kill it every night. Yeah, well, Slapshot's touring on Blast Furnace, so you can you can beat him every night. You, you can do that. <laughs> it's not Dude, the, not the band they, but the band they had together was really good. They oh, had sure. this guy Barry. Yeah, this guy Barry, the drummer, um, total pro. He was like fast tone sound guy and just a kind of a metalhead drummer, really good. And uh, Mike Bowser was like a grunge kid and just a really good. I mean, the lineup was solid. Like they were, we were like, after I remember playing our first show with them at that Sweden festival, going, "Oh man, we just killed it." And then they came on. I went, "Oh, okay. Like these, yeah. these guys are a lot. These guys are a lot better than us. We we're gonna have to try and bust our butt." Well, there was, um, they were seasoned, right? I mean, like that was their circuit. Like I never, I never saw, exactly. Slap, I never saw Slapshot until like a couple years ago. They just never, right. came, they never came to the West Coast. Like, why would they? Their East Coast is just as close to go to Europe as it is to come to us. You yeah, know? that's true. That's true. So they had been doing it for, yeah, they had been doing it for a while, and we were still trying to figure out what amp sounded good live and what you know. We were, we didn't know how to. It's a lot different when you're sitting in your bedroom playing your bass or your guitar and then you get on stage and you got to crank a Marshall half stack or a Ampeg full stack, you know, up to get it to sound where it sounds good on stage. And there's, you know, there's a, there's an art to that for sure of getting a tone and um, figuring out how to make your band sound good live. So that was definitely something that we kind of got thrown into the fire on. We just had to figure it out. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, so you come back and then you do the first recording with Zoli, which is the, the in my time seven inch. Is that correct? So the first tour ends last show in Germany and the lost and found guys kind of want to strike while the iron's hot. So he goes, Hey, why don't you guys take a train? Cause we were all staying an extra month in Europe just to go vacation. Cause yeah. we had these 90 day, 90 day tickets. So he goes, Hey, why don't you guys take a day off, get on a train and come to Bremen, Germany, where the uh, lost and found label was. He's like, I'll put you in the studio and we'll do uh, your next release tomorrow. Yeah. 
And we That's said, yeah, sounds good. That's right. I actually wrote that down, recorded it, lost and found. So. Yeah. And um, that was a day and a half after the tour ended. And we recorded the In My Time EP in 20, 22 hours, I think. We had one day to do it. And uh, again, not knowing any difference of how things are supposed to happen. Can you guys record five, six songs in, in a day? Yeah, sure, why not? And so, I mean, there's vocals and everything. This is so, we recorded all that. We started at like noon and uh, ended at like 10 a.m. the next day. Yeah, it's amazing that his voice is holding up, huh? After like that whole tour. Well, at that point, he was so dialed in with using it. It was so warmed up over doing singing for two months yeah. um, that he could have sang all night. Um, and it was, and, and plus we're 22. No, no, 23 at that point. Okay. So it's like, it didn't, you know, it wasn't like, there wasn't anything factoring into wear on the body, um, especially coming off like a two month tour where we've been playing every night, every night, every night. So, yeah. So yeah, so we did the MI time seven inch in 22 hours. Yeah. And this, seven, or, or sorry, EP. the seven inch is great. Um, the seven inch comes out on conversion. The, uh, they do a 10 inch picture disc and a CD on lost and found. Yeah. The lost and found came out first and we were not happy with the mixes and we took the rough mix from tape, uh, just the audio tape we had and made a, uh, the conversion release okay. off of just a, yeah. So that came out a few months later and then uh, quite a few years later they did that picture disc. Okay. Um, yeah. So cool. That was kind of the process on that. Yeah. And then, so you come back and then do you, do you see like the ignite popularity growing at this time now that you have releases out and you're playing around in Southern California and so forth? Well, so when we got back in the end of 94, nothing was released in the States yet for us. It oh. was only the scarred for life in Europe and it was an import here. So we didn't have a domestic release. Right. So, we brought home a bunch, as many as we could, a couple hundred of the Scars for Life. But at that point, it didn't really represent the band because it was Joe and Randy, and now we have Zoli. Right. But we need to get music out there. So we're, we're selling these uh, CDs that we brought home, a couple hundred of them, to Vinyl Solution, to Zeds, to sell, just to get the name out there. And um, um, we, didn't have a, uh, we didn't have the In My Time CD uh, available yet. So we started playing shows at the end of 94. And, um, you, but to answer your question, yeah, you could definitely tell people were doing their homework and getting the releases, and buying the imports and stuff because the first, one of the first shows we played after we got back compared to the show we played before we left when nobody was there. And then three months, four months later, we get back and play a show and it was a pretty full show and people knew all the words to the songs and it's like, Oh, okay. This feels like Europe. This is awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And so the next year you do call my brothers. Um, yeah, and this is most of these songs are already written. There's not too much new for Call My Brothers, but it's like you go in and you do a cohesive LP with Zoli singing everything. Yeah, um, yeah. What do you remember about the process of recording this record? We had a lot of songs. Um, there was a few songs that weren't finished that we did finish, like uh, 50 in a month and uh, a couple of the other songs. I'm trying to think what else wasn't. Uh, released maybe black like that one. No, that was on the, in my time. It was. Um, yeah. yeah, and um, yeah, there, maybe it was just fifteen a month. But um, yeah, we went in and there was like it just felt like it. There was like loose releases everywhere. We needed one solid release for the states, 
um, with everything on it. And uh, we went and wanted to retrack everything, get a good recording for Paul, my brother. So we went into, for the record, with uh, Jim Monroe. And uh, that didn't take 22 hours. That took a few, quite, quite a long time. Because yeah. um, they, they're in the middle of doing other records. So it's like, hey, we have five days here, and then you guys can come back. And we were like, okay, this is weird. Um, but that was cool, because that was the first time where you could go home and sit on uh, recordings and listen to rough mixes and make changes and write you know, vocal parts and write guitar parts to uh, songs instead of just trying to like spit something out in like one day in the recording studio, how, how we had done before. So, um, yeah, Calling Rose was cool. Um, and then it was, it was nice to just get that out in the States. And then that also got imported to Europe. And, um, it was nice to have like a, an official release out so we could actually tour on something in America that was available to people. Yeah, it comes out on Conversion Records in 1995. It uh, it, yep. sound, it sounds best on clear vinyl, and uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> not But uh, so do you do you tour the states then? Is that your first time doing it in '95? That's yeah, that's when we go out and hit the states hard in the summer of '95. Uh, with uh, we go do a big run with Earth Crisis, um, and then we go do another run with Integrity, and we played. Uh, let's see, it was uh, Guilt. Van Downer was on part of it. Um, uh, Damnation was on part of it. Um, and we did a full, it was a full run. And um, it, which is interesting because those were like some of the bigger hardcore bands of the time. Like they was those, we were getting the full push from Victory. There was nobody at any of those shows. Yeah. I mean. Um, once they leave their little pockets. Yeah. Once you're outside of Chicago, New York, you know, there was like 12 people in Atlanta and they were throwing milk at Earth Crisis while they were playing. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, it wasn't like, oh man, back in the day when the shows were all giant. It was, that was back in the day and there wasn't anybody at those shows, you know. The big shows, Louisville was great because um, I think that's where Guilt was from. Um, and some of the other bigger A markets were good, but for the bulk of it, you go like play Alabama, you go places like places florida and there was nobody at these shows um but we did it you know we went out we had to do it jersey new york philly washington dc were all awesome you know those shows were all three four five hundred kids um but it was small the the scene was pretty small and um you know we did yeah we did two full runs that year and then we ended up sick of it all in december and did now that was a real run that was awesome when we did like 10 shows with them on the east coast um, that was the first time we'd got to play to like some, uh, bigger rooms full of uh, people that knew our stuff and were appreciative of like hardcore music in general. You know what I mean? So you'd be going and playing shows where people know your stuff and they wanted mosh and stage dive and stuff. So the sick of all tour was amazing. That was at the end of 95. Okay. And before we move on from calling my brothers, I just want you to sure. to look back on it and, and where do you think it stands? Like, do you, do you believe that it's like a classic American hardcore LP? Do you, do you believe it's as good I, as I believe it is? Um, that that album to me represents uh, a definitely a specific unique time for Ignite because of the lineup that was different then and the way we wrote songs back then was completely different than how we write songs now. Um, <clears throat> we didn't think about song structure. We didn't think about. Uh, oh, the chorus has to go twice and we got to make sure this part's catchy or, you know, kind of when, as you start thinking about songs and, and uh, 
certain pop sensibility that you just get used to from listening to music. Um, back then it was just part A, part B, part C, part D. Um, and whatever was cool, we stuck with. And then we just put vocals on top of the music that we thought sounded cool. And um, so that was a like a, kind of a unique um, time for us as far as on the musician side of it for the songwriting, which was um, which makes it special because it, you just some of the stuff that we wrote was just it doesn't make any sense when you look at the song on paper, but it works because it sounds cool. And um, a lot of the songs were like that. Um, we just liked certain parts, so we wanted to play them, and parts we didn't, we clipped, and it was just it was a different way to songwrite. It was it was we were younger, we didn't. You know, it was just we did whatever we thought felt good at the time. No, I mean, there's so many brilliant little tiny things on the record, like, you know, like going to the verse riff slow on uh, yeah. Ash Return before you kick in fast. You know, right. like, and that, that's so gnarly. Like, you just, I remember being in the crowd and these things happening, you know, it's like, that's just, when you do that riff slow, it's like, oh shit, like now's the time. Like it's coming. It's building. You yeah, 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 yeah. So it's exactly. like, even if on paper it's not making sense, like you really are because what you're doing is you're, you're pushing the boundaries of straightforward hardcore in such like a, like an, an artistic, but not poetic way, I guess. Like, right. and there's just so many layers uh, painted on this record, like with Joe's playing, you know, and you're playing, and Casey Jones, like doing like the, the off time type stuff. And of course, Zoli's voice. I mean, this, right. this four pieces with sticking in like the, the boundaries of like straightforward, fast, hardcore. It's like, as almost as far as you can take it in every direction, which is what makes it so Casey, like magical. Yeah. Casey w- was very, very creative. And, um, uh, he would come up with really cool stuff and he would have cool ideas for music too. Um, he wouldn't, you know, he didn't know notes. He wouldn't say, go, go to the C sharp minor there. You know, he would just, you know, Hey, I'm hearing something like this. Can you guys, you know, so, and his drum beats were really cool. He always came up with, really, he was listening to a lot of helmet sense field. Um, and his whole background was, you know, total hardcore. So he had that in his repertoire of, of knowledge for all the fast beats from, you know, bad brain, scream, minor threat, all that stuff that he grew up on. But then, you know, he got into really heavy stuff. Pius, been listening to a lot of, like I said, Helmet, and uh, and so he was trying to incorporate all these like heavier beats and these halftime parts into the stuff. And we thought it was really cool um, because I really liked it because I didn't come from the the fast beat world. The stuff that I did have written and played in was all like kind of more melodic and dark. And uh, and then you throw Joe's like kind of interesting chords and stuff over it. And then also just the hardcore chords. Um, it made, yeah, it made our sound. It made our kind of unique sound. Um, and it was a lot of fun because there was a lot of discovery for us at that point of uh, incorporating these sounds that we like from these other bands, you know, and uh, like Smashing Pumpkin, Chinese Dream had just come out. There was some really cool riffy stuff on there. It's cool bass stuff. Um, there was just all this really cool music going on. Um, in the underground and the mainstream from nine inch nails to all the Seattle stuff, which had all had elements of punk rock and heaviness in it. Um, so it was, I don't know. It was fun. It was fun listening and writing music back then because all this stuff was new coming out and you were getting inspired like every day. And, uh, um, and then working with those guys are Joe and Casey are both really creative guys. So it's cool. And then Zoli, you know, singing on top of it making it sound like ignite, you know, it was, uh, 
it was a good, yeah, it was a good team. It was, that was like chapter two for me. Chapter one was the Nelson uh, phase of the uh, band. And then chapter, you know, the next chapter was uh, the four piece with uh, Zoli and Joe and Casey and me. Yeah. And so then also in, in 95, the family CD comes out and this is, it's just calling my brothers, but they, it's a different sequencing on lost and found. Correct. Well, it's called my brothers minus in my time. Okay. And a different sequencing. Yeah. Cause all those, those six songs have already come out. So it didn't really make sense to put them on. So we put uh, those 10 or 11 songs, whatever it was on the family CD that made up the, the uh, call my brother's minus in my time. Okay. And then this is the last thing you do with lost and found. Um, can we just talk about the overall relationship with them? Cause like you're actually, you were one of the only bands that was like with them. Like they weren't bootlegging you. You were like kind of put like they were putting you out legitimately. And it seems like you have a pretty good relationship with them. We, we had an okay relationship with them. I mean, they were, if you grabbed any magazine in Europe from, I'm talking about from a magazine from the airport or a zine on a table at a show, they were advertising in everything. They were marketing and pushing harder than any label. And those guys loved the music and believed in it. Because we met them. We went to their warehouse. They wanted to take pictures. And they were fans of the scene in general. But, I mean, they were bootlegging a lot of stuff. And, I think they were just making a ton of money and uh, had the means to market it. So, I mean, we never got paid from them ever, okay. um, but they pushed us harder than any other label would have. So it's like, it, what do you want a few thousand dollars in royalties and not get pushed? Or do you want a label to push the crap out of your band everywhere across Europe wide and uh, help make your band big? So, you know, obviously it's smarter to take the, Luckily, in you know, just by circumstance, we were on that label, and uh, they just they pushed us. And you know, like I said, they wanted to get us right in the studio right after that tour while we were in Germany and record that EP, um, take advantage of that, get more out. Because I think they could see the writing on the wall that bands were going to stick around with them forever. Um, so that they wanted to take advantage of every opportunity that they had to put music out. So. Um, so yeah, so there wasn't really any bad blood. I mean, we didn't, and, and here's another thing that they did do, which is basically like payment. When we got to Europe on the Slapshot tour, they sent us like two or three hundred CDs for sure, free sure. Um, to sell, to sell, and we were selling for like you know twenty Deutschmarks, which is like twelve bucks or thirteen bucks at the time, and uh, all that was free. So we got, you know, we got we got paid uh, that way but we never got a check from them. We never knew how many CDs they sold. We never knew what the value of our sales really was. Um, I'm sure they made quite a bit of money. And in hindsight, I'm actually kind of okay with it, the way things turned out. Yeah, I mean, they definitely helped you get your footing as a band. Yeah. So, okay. In 96, you do uh, the Past Our Means EP, 12-inch EP, and yep. this is with Rev. Um so you get to, to join the Revelation family, which is like a, a real honor for any hardcore band. Yeah, it was cool because they the catalog spoke for itself. And um, we were actually still signed conversion. I think maybe we one or two releases. And uh, uh, Dennis moved away. The label kind of went under. So um, we had met with Jordan, and he was interested in putting out a uh, – uh, a release, or actually, we, with a contract we signed, we signed three albums with, with Revelation. So, um, and it was cool because they had a bigger reach and they had a bigger brand, and um, 
uh, you know, we talked to a few different labels at that time. We talked to Roadrunner, and uh, they didn't quite pull the trigger. We tried to talk to Fat Rec. We tried to talk to Epitaph, um, and we didn't get any bites from them. So um, it made sense for us to do the Revelation thing. Yeah, and again, just awesome record, you know, of of that of that era of Ignite. Um, same year, you do the Good Riddance split, which is just the song "Past Our Means" plus the Bad Brains cover, "Band in DC." Yep, yep. I mean, great. To that hear. was recorded in the same same session there. Um, oh, obviously, it was recorded on the Past Our Means session. Yeah, and it's now actually included on the Past Our Means, the re-release of it, the current one. Oh. All right, Jordan. Yeah, they redid the artwork a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, and added that song. So we had to go get that mastered and have it added to the the track listing. So I think on the twelve inch and the CD it's on, or maybe it's not on the twelve inch. I know it's definitely on the CD, the Bad Brain song. Um, and uh, yeah, and that was similar to the Slapshot seven inch that was put out um, as a tour promo, basically, you know, to push the Good Riddance Ignite tour that we were doing that year. Yeah, and and by then. The shows are, I mean, that's a great band for you to tour with in 96. That's pretty, a yeah, perfect band to tour with. Um, yeah, all, yeah. Do you remember all those shows being pretty good? Yeah, they were. We actually, um, we had to join the tour uh, like a week and a half late because something happened at home. I don't recall, but we met up and started, I think in Virginia Beach. We were supposed to start in Texas or Florida. And uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, all the shows were great. They were big. It was fun. That was a fun, that was a fun run of shows with this guy. Cool. And then, so now the next like four years are, are kind of a a little strange, right? There's there's not too much coming out. The Sea Shepherd seven inch and 10 inch come out. Those are just live recordings. Um, Yeah. But so kind of just, uh, well, Joe leaves the band and Casey leaves the band, right? Yeah. So in 90, so we, we record past our means and uh, that comes out on rev and we go to Europe and do our biggest, tour to date in Europe in 96 we take straight face over there and uh, that was awesome and then uh, yeah by the summer of 97 I think um, Casey yeah Casey actually left in the middle of the tour oh wow we were on the east we were on the east coast and uh, and uh, he uh, we were in DC and we played the black cat I think it was the black cat um, and the next morning he gets up when we're getting ready to hit the road to head to Virginia beach and just hails a taxi. And, uh, we, I'm kind of like, what is, what is Casey doing? <laughs> and, uh, he climbed out the back of the van too, which was weird. Um, in between the trailer out the back door and, uh, had his bag and then hailed a taxi and then was in a taxi. And I ran over to him. I go, Casey, what are you doing? He's like, I'm going home. He goes, I'm going home. I, I can't. I'm, I can't do it anymore. I'm over it. And, <laughs> and I go, what are you talking? What? Wait, no, come on. Get out of the, get, he's like, no, I, I got to go. I go, well, give me your backpack with all that. Cause he usually handled all like the merch money and stuff. And he was completely out, out. He was in a, kind of a bad spot. And uh, he's like, Oh, okay. Here, just take everything. And, and uh, he left, left the, uh, left the tour. And we were in, uh, we were in DC and we had a show that night in Virginia beach. Holy cow. So did you, were you able to find a fill in? So we, there was a couple guys from some of the bands we were playing with. They could jump in and play a few of the songs, but, um, a kid that we knew said, Hey, I got a buddy who goes to like, um, Berkeley school of music 
and he's a crazy drummer. He can play with you guys. I go, well, have you ever heard us? He's like, no, it doesn't matter. Hey, just sit down with him for a while. And I, I sat with this guy in the front seat of the car and showed him the eight, nine songs we were going to play with him. And then we were going to do four or five other, other guys. This guy learned all the songs in like a half an hour. I just said, I'll just kind of, I'll just kind of mouth to you what beat it. I go, well, basically we have a halftime beat, a fast beat, and there's a straight beat. Those are like, we could play songs where that will cover everything. And uh, it was kind of funny. So we pulled it off that night and it wasn't half bad to be honest with a, a guy who'd never heard the song. So then we played the show in Virginia beach and then uh, we had two days off to get to Florida and we flew out uh, our buddy Doug who had played in Vandals and Slapshot and a bunch of bands and he filled in the rest of the tour for us. Holy cow. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, it, was, it, was a, it was a road bump. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. That's serious road burn to just cut like that. Yeah. It was wild. Man, that's crazy. Um, So how do you deal with Joe Foster leaving? Because he, he was like the the main driving force initially and the main songwriter, of course. Yeah, so, I mean, me and him had started together and um, it was, uh, it was, and I knew, I knew Joe pretty well at that point. Joe's a very unique guy and he's very intense and, um, and he just had kind of lost the fire to play with the three of us mm-hmm. and uh, he wasn't enjoying it anymore at that point. That was in February of 98. Um, and uh, he just said uh, on our way to the whiskey show, hey, this is going to be the last show I play. And I, went, I was like, really? He's like, yeah. He's like, I, just can't, I can't do it anymore. I'm not in the spot where I want to continue on. And uh, there he has his reasons and his own um, re- uh, basically reasons for leaving that he, he told me about some of them. But, um, but yeah. And uh, so we went and played that show, which that's funny. You sent me the picture with you in the crowd. Yeah. Of the, uh, <laughs> stage guys. I didn't know. I didn't know that that actually, that picture was from that show. Yeah. Um, I, I was able to kind of figure it out. Cause I think I only saw you at the whiskey a couple times. And so it had to have been that show because that wasn't like the AF show, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, if, were you at the AF show? I was. Okay, so I mean, it could have been. You're probably right, though. You'd probably know seeing yourself in the picture because sometimes the pictures I see live, if they're at a venue and you've played it multiple times, it's kind of hard hard to figure out which year or what night it was. But uh, but uh, yeah, that's, that was funny when you sent that picture and I was like, oh, you're in that shot. That was kind of cool. I like. Because I obviously have all your records. I just don't go through everything. And I actually discovered that like kind of late, like maybe five years ago. Like, what? <laughs> what the fuck? You know, but, funny. yeah, so funny. But uh, so what are the what are the band conversations like? Like, did you think about calling it quits or you're just like, we're doing too good right now. We got to replace him no matter what. We So Craig had come in after Casey left and Doug filled in for that tour and then we got home and the first drummer we tried out was uh craig and craig's like he's ridiculously talented drummer um uh the 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 you know the the level of musicianship that he has was is gnarly and uh um so having a drummer you know on that level kind of brought the whole band up i thought we were at that point, you know, at the top of our game and when Craig got in the band and then, uh, kind of like you said, it was going really well and when Joe left it, like, me and Joel and Craig didn't have any 
any notions to hang it up at that point. We just thought we should find somebody that was, um, that could play all the stuff and that could write as well and um, try and try and do it. And we talked to Brian and it was really quick. He, he had, he was actually at that whiskey show too. And then uh, we started, we, I think we toured um, Canada with Pennywise a month later and he, uh, he was on that tour with us and uh, it was seamless. It was awesome. I mean, Brian's a ridiculously talented guitar, guitar player as well. So it was like, the band got really, I thought, really tight and really good at that point. And I thought, you know, that, that again, a lot of opportunities were in front of us. Yeah. And did he, did he come from 1134? Am I remembering that right? He did. Yeah, he did. Okay. He, um, he was a good, one of the guitar players in 1134. Okay. And then, so, and then there's another thing I remember before Place Called Home came out. I think that uh, there was like a demo circulating for a while. It might have been a year or two before the LP came out had like a, like maybe a different version of veteran. Do you remember yeah. like demoing and so forth? Yeah. So we were on rev and we owed them three records and we did an EP. So we still owed them two LPs on an EP. And, um, uh, we had gotten management at that time and, uh, and they, uh, thought it would have been best to try and get on a bigger label. Mm-hmm. Um, so we they went and we actually all went and sat with Jordan and said, "Hey, um, this is what we'd like to do. We'd like to spend this amount of money on a record and marketing." And uh, Jordan was totally. I mean, I'm really good friends with him. Still, I'm totally down to earth. He's like, "Hey, that's just not in our budget, guys. Um, why don't you guys go see if you can find somewhere else to go, and um, we can just work something out." And uh, so we started shopping. Uh, so we needed a demo to shop. So. Jordan was cool enough. He goes, I'll front the demo cost. I'll front the money for the demo for you guys to help you get shop. And uh, so we went in the studio, recorded Veteran, a couple other songs. Um, so that was, yeah, a different version of Veteran. That was like the demo version. And then we started shopping that demo to labels, indies, majors, everything, to see if there was interest out there to um, to try and go somewhere where we could get a, uh, even a bigger reach than uh, Rev. Okay, and then you end up landing with TVT. Yep. Okay. Yep. Sean Roberts over there was a uh, our A and R guy, and came from the the scene. New York guy, New York hardcore scene, knows all about us. Um, really excited about the demo, and um, they signed us to TVT, which was almost basically a major at that point. They had a Nine Inch Nails, KMFDM, uh, Seven Dust. Um, they were working with some. Snoop Dogg side projects. It was, it felt like a major, um, but it was still technically an indie. Okay. But um, and they were super excited. The only r- reservation we had is that we weren't going to get any label brand uh, recognition from going to a label like TVT. It wasn't going to be like being on Epitaph, where you're just going to be on everybody who's a fan of that, the test radar or fat wreck or nitro at that time, or um, a label like that, where you're probably going to get a bunch of people checking you out just because you're on that label. Uh, We knew that the TVT um, move wasn't going to get us that because I think VOD was on TVT at the time. So it was us and them from our world and everything else kind of from a bigger world that had nothing to do with us. But, they were very excited about the demo and they were very excited about the band and the record and the president Steve Gottlieb sat down with us and, you know, 
told us about how he was launching CBT Europe and he wanted our album to be the first album that came out so they could come out of the gates with something new, fresh for Europe. And um, so we were pretty excited about that, that they were going to um, push it so hard in Europe, which actually never ended up happening because TV to Europe ended up never materializing. So that was actually probably for the Europe's sake, one of the worst moves we could have made. But you can't, when you're sitting there with the president of a label and he's telling you about all these plans and you guys are going to be the, we're going to be flying the Ignite flag in Europe and you guys are going to be the number one band on the, because you guys already do so well there. It was, you know, you hope that they're telling the truth or that what they're talking about is going to happen. You know, you have to put your trust in these people and it happens all the time. It's nothing special. It's not a story that, you know, you know, it happens to bands all the time where, you know, it, that what the label promises doesn't work out. So, um, in hindsight, it probably would have been better to just do a punk rock um, label or a hardcore label um, for that release. I think it would have got, um, worldwide, it probably would have gotten um, more uh, more um, interest, more views, more listens. Do, do you think that this record, like, fell off a little bit like that? You, it didn't It didn't do as well as, as you were hoping? No pretty much the opposite the uh the the it eventually gets licensed in europe to uh bmg and uh they push it like crazy um it's all over the place in europe um we're getting on festivals we're doing tours we're playing shows the band grows um exponentially in europe off of the album okay um for us we thought the songwriting um it was different. Like it was the next chapter, like chapter three of the Brian Craig, Rolly Brett chapter of the band, the four piece with the two new guys. And, uh, we were super excited about how the whole thing came out. We thought we put everything into it and we were really happy with the results. And then you go out and play the shows and all these people are singing these songs back to you run and veteran and bullets included. And, and we're, we're yeah we're going on tour in america with the misfits we're touring with bad religion we're playing all these really big venues getting all this exposure and it was it was definitely a step up for us on all levels okay awesome cool yeah I mean, it, yeah i mean it's it's another good lp um i mean the only knock for any sort of momentum would just be that it came out like four years after the last release right I yeah mean, yeah exactly that may have hurt a little bit but yeah i mean you're back you're still full steam ahead at this point. But then uh, again, there's, there's a big break after this record or, or tell me if I'm wrong because Hatebreed put out their first LP and toured for five years off it and didn't slow down at all. But between, totally. this, but between this record and darkest days, there is six years. So yeah. Um, we, did you we just, toured tour and tour? Yeah, we, we did. We toured a ton and then um, we actually took a break. We took 2003 off completely. Yeah. Worked on some side projects. Um, didn't do anything to do with Ignite. I think that was the only year that we didn't play an Ignite show was, was 2003 in the history of the of the band. And um, um, yeah, so by the time we kind of regrouped at the end of 2003 and it was 2004, um, we kind of put a lineup together, the band, because Brian wasn't available to tour. We were bouncing between a couple guitar players. Um, and we got signed to Abacus in 05. So um, when then we went into the... No, actually, that's, yeah, yeah, 05. And uh, we started writing uh, Our Darkest Days at that point. So for us, other than the year in 03 where we did tour and downtime, um, 
everything else was pretty much tour, 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 push, promote, um, and then take a year off and then try and get a record deal and write. Yeah. How do you approach writing for this record? Cause it is, a it's a big change, but it's a, it's a great change. I think. It was, um, for me, it was the difference was it was that we didn't, so we didn't really have a guitar player that was full time at, at the time of the writing. So I started writing, um, for the first time, um, all the songs that I was going to contribute to the album I wrote on guitar rather than bass. Okay. Um, so I was demoing these songs with the friends in studios with a drum machine and I would go in and record a bunch of demos with me playing guitar on bass. Um, Bleeding, Know Your History, Poverty, Three Years, like all these songs, um, those first demos were me. So that was a big difference for me on that one was that I approached it from like a guitar uh, writing um, standpoint, um, which was different. Um, and then Brian was kicking in songs. We started working with Nick, um, who had toured with us previously, but now he was on board with doing... Uh, the album and doing the future touring. So I think just the, the collaboration was the biggest, um, the biggest change on the writing of our darkest days because, um, we had quite a few guys and ideas, um, coming together, um, to make these songs for this album. And some of it was demos from previous stuff. A lot of, most of it was new. Um, and we just wanted each song to be uh, its own little like kind of masterpiece. We wanted, we didn't want to finish the record until every song was good. Um, and that wasn't a hundred percent necessarily us. This was Cameron Webb who came in and uh, was producing the album, who um, worked a little bit on the post-production of uh, a place called home. We did all the pre demos with him, but um, TVT wanted us to go with kind of a bigger name person. So we went with Tom Wilson who had, done offspring and they were just doing the aquabats and and that so cameron didn't get the chance to do a place called home so when we approached him about doing our darkest days he was really excited because he thought that you know he he when he was listening to a place called home he was missing some of the things that he wanted to put his touch on so we went into <laughs> we had all these songs ready for our darkest days we knew bleeding was great um we thought the other songs all had potential um and Cameron basically told us it was terrible. <laughs> he goes, he goes, and we're all pumped. We're ready to go record. We're planning demos. He's like, you guys, this isn't even close. And we're like, what are you, really? And uh, he goes, yeah, go back in the studio for a month and rewrite all this. This part's good. I like this. He's like, keep what you guys want to keep if you're passionate about it. He's like, I'm not going to try and, you know, tell you guys if you guys absolutely believe in a part stand up for it and we'll use it he's like but these are the parts that i think are terrible these are the parts that i think are good um so we rewrote and rewrote and rewrote and then we were in the middle of recording the album and he kicked us out of the studio and told us to go back and start writing again because the songs weren't there so we rewrote that record like four times and finally um towards the end we were starting to see that what was happening with that record was something special and that we had is what we had thought had nailed it. Um, from what the, the group of songs that we took to him, Cameron and what we had towards the end, you could tell that the record was heading in a really cool direction. Um, it was darker. It was heavier at parts. It was fast. 
um, Zoe was killing it um, across the board. Um, we started using tons of like harmonies uh, in the recordings, which we did a little bit on a place called home. Um, Cameron made sing, made Zoe sing almost every part of the record in like a high falsetto that he could blend in at parts. And uh, it was just, um, it was an awesome experience to watch that whole thing progress and go from where the demos were to what ended up on the record. Yeah. In hindsight, it sounds like you appreciate that, but, but how does your ego take it? Like when he sends you home the second time, <laughs> <laughs> we laugh. It's okay. funny. Cause he's so unique and he's kind of like the sixth member and uh, he gets super passionate about it. So he's not just like, Hey, I need three days to work on this social D thing. Uh, go work on something, you know, get out of here. He, it's not like that. It's like, he's breaking down the songs and goes, why are you guys doing this in this section? Why is it doing this? And we're like, I don't know. Cause that's what it feels. He's like, no, this isn't working. It's just, it's, I don't look at it as an ego thing at all. I just look at it as um, a luxury actually of having somebody like that, that, that actually listens and cares and puts in the two cents of um, his opinion to make the songs better you know at the end of the day we have to go play it and tour it and uh live it for the rest of our lives um he doesn't really because he's on to the next project and working on the next record and and but um it's awesome to know the kind of you know effort he puts into it and uh i thought it was cool i thought that that was the first time it actually felt like we worked with a producer that actually produced rather than just twisted knobs and was an engineer sure and is this your favorite night record yeah, it's mine. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I love it. I mean, I hate to be the guy that to like the first one or the call of my brothers so much, but this is my second. Right. Favorite, this is my second favorite record. So I, I love this one too. Yeah, I think. it it was a different band, you know. It was call my brothers almost feels like it was a different band, and it's it has its own like coolness about it. And uh, but I mean, it is it's the same band. It's the same name. It's ignite. It's just you know the band had to progress because of member change and uh or change because of member changes and uh you know that's where we ended up we ended up with those guys writing those songs and uh it's just a, it was a different band at that point you know yeah but this is so good and fully formed where um maybe maybe a place called home is is you guys are transitioning out of one thing and maybe halfway into the next thing like almost like it's a yeah it's an lp but it's like the idea and where the band at is almost like in a another demo stage so where this is just full, think, fully formed, great LP. I think a place called home could have been as good if we had a different producer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we didn't change anything. We wrote 13, 14 songs, went in there and tracked them. And uh, Tom Wilson didn't change anything on any song. We, we went in later and changed stuff on our own after we moved on and started working with Cameron at the end and changed a few songs, rewrote some parts. But, um, I think with a producer, that song, that album could have been on, on par with, with, uh, our darkest days. Yeah. So I still think it's one of my favorite night records place called home, but I just think, I don't think it's quite as good as our darkest days. No, but you guys also haven't done a bad record. So it's, it's, it's <laughs> fine. The catalog's great. Um, touring after this, um, any surge in popularity? Cause this is like a little more, I, I, I would hate to say radio friendly. I'm just not that, uh, I'm not that versed in like indie music and, 
and sure. popular music. But I mean, so to my ear, it's like, oh, these songs might be more palatable if I, you know, if I, I could put it on in the car with my mom. She'd probably like it, you know? Totally. My, my mom's cool, yep. though. Um, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, is did did the popularity grow off this anywhere? Yeah, yeah a lot everywhere. Okay. I mean, that was probably, that was, you know, got us to probably the level. It's interesting because the band's still, it's interesting. The last tour we did last year, we had some shows bigger than we've ever played in some city. Um, it's been a weird phenomenon. Um, but um, yeah, that definitely, we got, we start playing theme stages at festivals off of uh, Our Darkest Days where a lot of times most of the punk bands would play the side, punk and hardcore bands are on the side stage. And then like, you know, Sepultura and Motorhead and bigger bands are playing the main stage on these heavier festivals in Europe. And now we're playing the main stage, um, in the afternoon, some of the medium sized festivals were headlining. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just, I think the album just connected with a ton of people. It's still weird when you, go on an autograph signing at some festival in Europe and just there's 300 people in line and people are just talking about how our darkest days changed their life and uh, it's uh, and how it's that made us their favorite band it's still weird when somebody tells you that you're their favorite band because I don't know it's just that's an odd thing to hear because um, I have my favorite bands and my things and I grew up listening to Beatles and this and that and my whole path to music and it's just funny when, uh, it's just it's uh, it's humbling it's, it's really cool but um but that album got us to that point where I think we uh, connected with a ton of people. There was a lot of songs on that record that just resonated with a lot of people. And there was For Better Days, the acoustic song, which kind of op- opened up something new for us. And uh, yeah, it was uh, definitely kind of a turning point for the band. Uh, definitely in Europe and uh, I think everywhere we go, um, still a lot of the songs that people want to hear when we ask them what songs they want to hear are the songs off of our darkest days. Yeah, sorry. I'm gonna decline that. Um all right, to be a total completist, I gotta say, in uh in 07 you do a little side project called the oh, I shouldn't say little. Um you do a side project Last of the Believers. Yeah. On yep. New Age. And how does it feel playing with like a, a different group of people? It's different. It's, 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 you know, you've been playing with the same guys for so long and you get in a room with four other guys and it's like starting over kind of, it's not entirely, but it's, you know, you used to playing with a drummer who has certain, you know, nuances and stylistic things that you're used to. And then, uh, guitar players and, and writing style, you get used to playing with the same guitar players for a decade and you kind of know what each other's going to do and you're kind of used to playing. And yeah, so playing with different, but I think it's good. I think it's good to play with other people. Um, it makes you think, uh, it's a different approach to music. And even though it, it can still be the same style of music, it's, it's a, it's a different feel. So I, I thought that was a, I thought that was a good thing. Yeah. And, and for me, as, for me as a musician. Yeah, totally. Um, but do you ever look at the singer and you're like, can you go a little higher? Like it's hard coming from Zoli to anyone else. Like no, no. belt it for real, dude. Like hit that a down, right. hit that a down note. Yeah, hit that super high note right there. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's that's just a luxury that I've had. Um, working with Zoli this whole time was uh, him being able to do freakish things, but I that's unexpected from anybody <laughs> else. I mean, there's not too many people in the world that can sing like Zoli. Yeah, and again, another another little uh, hardcore chapter because you get to put out some on New Age, 
So that's cool. Shout out, yeah. shout out Hartsfield. Um, yeah, exactly. And then Oh nine, you do another side project band nations of fire, which yep. you're still doing now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nations still exists. Um, a couple of the guys live in Oregon, me and Nick live down here. It's 98% inactive, but there'll be a point where we go play some shows or do something. Um, again, it's fun. That, that band, the four guys enjoy being with each other in a van, in a room, in a studio, on the phone, um, we have a good time. It's um, it's 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 very in, enjoyable group of dudes to play with. So um, it's always been a lot of fun to um, do anything Nations of Fire um, with uh, Chris and Todd and Nick. Yeah, cool. Um, in 2010, Zoli joins Pennywise. How how does that go over with Ignite? Um, it was really cool. Um, Fletcher calls me <laughs> after Jim quit and Hey Brett, uh, so I'm just going to be straight up. Uh, I'm, uh, we're going to, you know, check out Zoli and, uh, just wanted to get you okay with it first, which I thought was really cool. Um, and then he, of course, then interrogated me for like an hour about everything Zoli. <laughs> um, and, uh, I took the fifth on like ninety nine percent of it. No, just kidding. But um, did he ask um, if he's gonna I, if he's gonna have to go clean up Pelican shit? He asked everything across okay. the board. You know, how is he as a songwriter? How is he touring with? Well, and we had toured with Pennywise quite a bit at that point. So sure. they're friends. They they've been on the road together. Zoe's flown certain places on in between shows with these guys and stuff. And, but you know, he wants to get in some insights because he's never been in a band with them. So. Um, yeah, so he basically just said, we're going to try him out. There's no guarantee that he's going to do it. And if he does it, um, I just want you to know that you guys don't have to stop doing Ignite. And, uh, I was like, that's awesome. I go, we're kind of doing the site project anyways. It's Nations of Fire. Um, me and Nick and, uh, I go, you know, make a great record and go out and kill it. Because at that point in 2010, we had toured for three and a half years on our darkest days. Wow. And it was time to, it was time to take a break. I mean, we went everywhere. We toured 50 countries. We went Southeast Asia. We went Australia. I mean, we, South America, we did everywhere, everywhere we possibly could, um, off that record. And we were still getting tour offers that we just said, it was kind of funny because we had decided at that point that we were going to start working on the new record. And that's when we actually started demoing new songs for the new record was in, um, at the end of 09. And um, we're just like, we can't tour anymore. we got to put something new out. But we just kept getting these offers because um, people were, just the Our Darkest Days whole thing was, that had you know done so well for the band. So, um, um, so it was actually, yeah, pretty good timing. And he joined the band. And I thought, I thought with us taking a break or writing at that time anyways, it probably wouldn't be a bad idea a bad thing to have our singer singing Pennywise. Sure. Yeah. And, and he, he does it. a great job on the record. Yeah. You know, a lot of people like that record a lot. A lot of Pennywise fans, a lot of Ignite fans. So, um, to me, it sounds, it was almost like a, a continuation of kind of where a place called home. It was like, and that felt to me, if it was maybe an Ignite record, it would have been the record in between place called home and, um, our darkest days. Yeah, I would agree. Um, when I listened to it. Um, but yeah, I thought it was awesome. It was cool. And, um, 
a lot of people, you know, learned about Zoli being in that band. You know, he was in the band for from August of 09 till like 2013. He was in the band for like three and a half years. A long time. Yeah. A full, you know, album cycle, full touring. They did a, a full touring cycle before he got in the band to work out any kinks and make sure he was the right guy. And, you know, they toured for a year and a half before they did the record. So, um, so yeah, I thought the Pennywise thing was awesome. I thought I, I thought it was a good thing for Zoli. I thought it was a good thing for Ignite. Um, I thought I, it would, and the, the timing of it was perfect. Yeah, no, I mean it sounds perfect. Four years after the LP comes out, and six years before your next record. So, <laughs> right, totally. Yeah, um, 2012, Nations of Fire. You guys do your first LP, Redfield Records, and yep. this is a cool record. How do you feel about it? Um, it was fun, you know, again, getting in the studio, uh, recording with those guys, um, is, is, is a good time. We got to go out to the blasting room to do the record with, um, with that whole crew out there. Um, Jason and Bill and all those guys. Um, so that was, that was a, a pretty cool recording experience because that is so regimented on a calendar because they're in Fort Collins, Colorado. And, uh, you can't work on a, recording for a couple weeks and then come back. It's like you go bang it out in the 18 days or the 22 days or however many days you have allotted for it. And then the record, it better be done, you know? And, um, so, uh, that part of it was really cool working with those guys going out there doing the record being, you know, kind of sequestered for three weeks and just doing nothing but recording every day. Um, and then we went up to Europe, um, did, two cool tours off that record played some awesome festivals played some big shows it was yeah it was it was a all-around really cool experience the next thing that comes out is also 2012 uh the ignite the live album darkest days live and yeah this, that wasn't it's kind of cool to do a live record i mean i think that's the that's a sign of truly making it <laughs> making it that was a that was such a nightmare that album um or the dvd uh we recorded it in 08 and it took four years to uh for that thing to come out oh, um, yeah. yeah so we recorded that in spring of 08 in leipzig germany and um by the time we got the edits from the company in europe uh, it took forever. We didn't like any of it. Um, we didn't like the audio. Uh, so we took the whole thing and took it upon ourselves to do. Brian uh, edited the whole thing. We built a behind the scenes uh, kind of movie to go with it. And that stuff starts taking time. And all of a sudden you're like 12 months, 18 months, 20. It's like, oh my gosh. After it was a year of us you know, killed. we got all the files and everything. And then it was like 2011 and the thing's still not out yet. And, and finally we finished it and we were really happy with uh, the final thing. But um, yeah, it was like, uh, that was, that was a painful process. Yeah. Um, 2016, you're back doing your next LP war against you. Um, how, yep. how did the songwriting process differ from our darkest days? You guys are just a, a fully formed machine, right? And just going, knock it out no uh it wasn't it was a struggle um we uh nick quits in the middle of uh recording 
Okay. Um, and he's a he's a pretty big songwriter on everything that we're doing. Um, and it starts dragging on. Cameron's in the middle of a ton of projects. Um, we're doing a Motorhead thing. Uh, I think a live record um, with them. Um, no, it was a studio album. Um, it was really disconnected. It, it didn't feel like there was a lot of... Uh, it wasn't fluid, the recording uh, experience on that one. And uh, we had a bunch of demos done that we had... Obviously, at this point in time, songwriting is getting uh, everybody on GarageBand. So we're, we're making tons of demos. And uh, uh, that part's awesome. Um, bouncing songs back and forth from each other. But uh, to me, it just feels like we didn't finish the record. Okay. Um, it felt like it was a little bit rushed, even though it took two years, a year and a half, however long. It, it took a long time from when we started. Nick quit. We kind of had to reassess uh, the whole album, kind of reworking stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, there we. I don't. I just don't think we nailed it. Like on that one, when we finished the record, it was the first time that I was like had questions more than answers. Um, Call my brothers, past our means, place called home, darkest days. When we walked out, when we had that final mastering session. I was like, "There's we have something here." This one, I thought there was great moments, and I thought there was a ton of potential, but it just didn't feel like that we uh, nailed nailed it um, as far as uh, what our job was on our side. And I thought that Cameron was a little distracted too at that time, just because of all the stuff on his plate. And uh, I just don't think that um, we had the focus quite as we did on our darkest days or a place called home or Pastor Means Palmer Brothers, to be honest. Yeah. How do you feel about the record? I like it. I think there's awesome moments. I love a lot of the songs. It's funny when you listen to a record, um, you hear songs. You, the biggest always kind of regret that I have on record is not the as much the writing or the recording as it is the track listing. You yeah. don't sometimes realize which songs are going to be uh, kind of the bangers and which ones are going to, I don't just the track listing. So there's the, songs se- the on, sequencing like, is hard for you. Yeah, exactly. Cause I, I, I would, I would have resequenced it in a little different way. Um, and, uh, I think that would have affected the feel of the listening of the record. Um, we just got to have lost like and found put it out and they could be family too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, um, I think the record's solid. I just, the track listing bothers me and, uh, some of, uh, I just, feel like we didn't finish some of the stuff it just feels like the natural follow-up like i don't know what else you would have done it's so hard to follow on a record like our darkest days and this sounds like i don't, I don't know maybe maybe it is like the it's the place called home after calling my brothers like you know it's just it's kind of the same and just but not the one but it's still really, right yeah it's it, still really good like you can't you can't look at a place called home or a war against you and be like, these aren't good records. Like they're still better than what 90% of other records bands put out. But, I just think each record we did, um, call my brothers was a collaboration of all the Europe stuff we did. And we were happy with that because we had played that stuff live and we knew that people responded to that. Well, and we were stoked on those songs. Mm-hmm. And then 
past our means when we wrote that we went in with a goal in a direction that we were going to make a more aggressive record that was we wanted to make faster edgier heavier heart we wanted to make it we didn't want to put out a because uh, a lot of those albums that were coming out on rev at the time were like sensefield and Side and stuff like that was a little softer so we wanted to be we wanted to make the past our means almost harder than um call my brothers which felt like we did and we accomplished what we wanted to do songs like embrace stuff like that were just like they fit perfect and place called home. We went in and accomplished exactly what we wanted to do with that one. We wanted to make some more mature songs without losing any of the edge. Um, our darkest days, we were, had a game plan of making, you know, going in everything. We had a game plan. This was the only album we didn't have a game plan really going into, yeah. um, of what we wanted to accomplish with the record. And so it feels more like a follow up record rather than its own thing. I think, I think that's really fair to say. That's a that's a you really know. good way of looking at it. Okay. So Yeah, coming yeah. off coming off that, you do uh another Nations of Fire record, Violence, on uh yeah. Redfield Records. And this is kinda cool because you do a a CD EP and then it gets re released on vinyl as a split with another band called Last Light. Yep. So it, it sees its vinyl release, but uh, as a split. Kinda cool. Yeah, we just uh the guys over in Europe, our good friends, had an idea to do it as a split, and we were all about it because it wasn't going to come out on vinyl, and uh, <clears throat> all the dudes in the band are vinyl nerds, so we're like, just for our own personal collections, we wanted to have those um, those songs on vinyl. So, And they did a great job picking the right band for that and uh, putting it out and pushing it, and a lot of people, yeah, we got a pretty good response from that one. So that was a lot of fun, that record, too, because we self-recorded uh, produced that one up in uh, in Oregon at our guitar player Chris's house. He's got a studio there that um, we worked out of, and that was that was a lot of fun doing it um, completely ourselves. And that's Chris Chassie of uh, yeah Reach the Sky fame. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, cool. We went through everything. I mean, we'll we'll leave it on um, your 2020. Zoli leaves a band. Um, we don't need to get into it. Maybe we'll do a follow-up at some point when you uh, figure out how everything's going to go. Um, but that's a, that's a pretty big thing. I don't, I don't know if you want to touch on it at all. Um, you're welcome to, there's, or we can just leave it as yeah, a start. Nothing really to touch on it at this time. I mean, it's still pretty new, and, and so we're just kind of figuring out everything out right now. So, yeah, um, yeah that's about where we're at with that. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Brett, you've been so generous with your time. I really appreciate you doing this. And uh, thanks to Vogel for hooking it up. Yeah. Um, got the man. I got yeah. the text from him. I was like, yeah, let's do this. Yeah. I, I don't know if uh, you knew how nerdy it was going to be, but that's what I like to do. I like to do that that early deep dive. And I, I feel- Yeah, no. And I, gotta, I, I still have all that stuff pretty much in my head. And um, I got a decent memory for stuff when it comes to like the long term, like, how was this recording experience? How was this album? What was this day? What did we do on this tour? So, uh, yeah, that played in well. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, I do need the uh, the uh, drum machine demos. So this, the sooner you send them to me, the uh, less you'll get punished. Um, I think I'm just going to have to have you punish me on that one because I don't think anybody has those. I don't think anybody's <laughs> ever heard those. Oh, my God. They, uh, I got to hear them at some point, Brett. Where, um, where do you live? Where, are you in California? Yeah, I'm in San Diego. But uh, okay. but we're we're quarantining. Hopefully, by the time this comes out, um, maybe things will open up a little bit. 
and then uh, I'm sitting in my car right now in at, at a park, and a bunch of people were here uh, parked like two or three spots away, like talking with each other. It was like a, this weird social gathering, and yeah. I just came over to look at this to look at this golf course to see if anybody had hopped the fence and was playing because um, I try and play golf uh-huh. at least once a week. I'm a pretty big golf fan, so I was like checking. So I was like kind of at the interesting time, this uh, 2020 coronavirus quarantine thing. Yeah, well, hopefully it passes. Yeah, passes hopefully. Soon. Yeah. So thanks so much for doing this, uh, Brett. I got to ask, uh, do you feel like you've been well represented? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Great. Yeah. No, I, no I, I, I enjoy going back sometimes and, and uh, opening up those chapters and stuff and kind of relating that stuff because I think it's good to keep that stuff kind of fresh. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Awesome. And I'll Take see- care, bud. All right. Goodbye.